Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Divine Mystery of Personal Destiny, Judas and Matthias. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 5th, 2011. In the remarkable film Capote from 2005, Truman Caprodi befriends a murderer named Perry Smith in order to research what he calls his non-fiction novel, In Cold Blood. Although Capote gave some legal help to Smith, he ultimately exploited him for fame and fortune. He even fretted to his childhood friend Harper Lee that he needed Perry to die in order to finish his book. If they win this appeal, he said, I may have a complete nervous breakdown. He repeatedly lied to Smith about his book's progress, manipulated him for details, betrayed him to legal limbo, and when asked by Lee if he esteemed Smith, only said, well, he's a gold mine. Interviewing Perry Smith dislodged unsettling memories of Capote's own childhood, Memories of exclusion as as an effeminate kid, family suicide, alcoholism, and parental abandonment. Those haunting memories fueled an obsessive act of self-identification with and emotional attachment to Perry Smith, so much so that his gay partner Jack Dunphy accused him of falling in love with Perry. But despite similar family dysfunctions, their life trajectories could not have been more different. Truman Capote became an icon of New York City's rich and famous glitterati and died of alcohol and drug abuse at the age of 60. Perry Smith was a petty criminal and a merciless killer who was executed by the state of Kansas when he was 36. In the film, Capote pondered this mystery of diverse destinies that unfolded from such similar beginnings. He said, It's like Perry and I grew up in the same house. And one day, he stood up and went out the back door, and I went out the front. The readings from the first chapter of Acts this week introduces two men, both of whom served in the inner circle of Jesus' twelve apostles. For people across many cultures in twenty centuries, the name Judas Iscariot has epitomized infamy, treachery, and tragedy. As for Matthias, despite his importance as the so-called thirteenth apostle who replaced Judas, history consigned him to anonymity and obscurity. And since Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14 is the only passage about Matthias in Scripture, we know nothing else about him. Meditating on the lives of these two intimate followers of Jesus, I find it difficult, if not impossible, to understand how or why each one ended up where he did. Such is the mystery of our personal destinies, both theirs and ours. With his infamous kiss of betrayal, Judas served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus, Acts 1.16. But why? How could he have committed such a deplorable act? 
Three scriptures locate the explanation outside of and beyond Judas' own choices. John 17.12 said that Judas was, quote, doomed to destruction, as if some ominous fate overtook him. Both John and Luke also say that Judas' betrayal, quote, fulfilled scripture. But their interpretation of the Old Testament to reach this New Testament conclusion is one that would make most hermeneutics professors scratch their heads. And finally, Luke also writes in Luke 22.3 that Satan entered Judas to betray Jesus. I don't find these three explanations very satisfying or illuminating. And yet, at a fourth level, we shouldn't patronize Judas as a mere pawn. He did what he did for his own complex motives, some of which are no doubt lost to us today. He received his famous 30 pieces of silver, but I suspect that other factors came into play, including some that he himself could not fathom. Perhaps it was natural when 150 years later some fringe Gnostic Christians tried to rehabilitate Judas's reputation. The recently discovered Gospel of Judas, a 3rd or 4th century Coptic translation from the original Greek that contains very little that is specifically Christian, portrays Judas as a hero who betrays Jesus at his own request and not as the quintessential villain. As for his own convoluted motives and their tragic outcome, I would make three observations. First, in itself, Judas's betrayal of Jesus is unremarkable. Peter, of course, denied that he would ever betray the Lord, but did so three times. The other eleven all said the same thing, but when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples deserted him and fled. And so we see our own selves. We should never deny our capacity for denial. Second, after betrayal and denial, Judas and Peter responded in similar ways. After aiding and abetting in the condemnation of Jesus, we read that Judas was filled with remorse and returned the blood money. For his part, Peter wept bitterly. And then finally, in playing the role of the quintessential scapegoat, Judas not only took our place, he triggered the events that led to the greatest good for all humanity, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what about Matthias? His selection to replace Judas is no less murky. Peter invokes Psalm 109, verse 8, to validate the process with the imprimatur of prophetic fulfillment. May another take his place of leadership. The eleven remaining apostles simply nominated two candidates. They proposed two men, Acts 1.23. When they prayed, they confessed that God himself had already chosen the right person and that their task was to decipher the divine predetermination. And finally, there are a few churches today that use this method. The apostles resorted to dumb luck to ascertain the divine intent. 
A roll of the dice identified Matthias instead of the alter alternate Joseph called Barsabbas. Contemplating these divine mysteries of personal destiny, I thought of the poem by John Milton, perhaps the greatest poet of the English language. Struck blind at the age of 44, in his sonnet, When I Consider How My Light Is Spent, Milton ponders why God would gift him with remarkable talents only to take them back. The ways of God felt harsh and arbitrary. Plunged into a world of darkness, he wondered, When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, in that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask? But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed, in post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Patience, humility, availability, and even resignation to the inscrutability of divine design are all service us well. In the words of Milton's near contemporary George Herbert, it's probably best to leave thy cold dispute about what is fit or not. Whoever we are and wherever we are, a haunted novelist like Capote, a failed disciple like Judas, an obscure apostle like Matthias, or a struggling poet like Milton. Every person can serve him best right where they are, even those who, in the words of Milton, only stand and wait. Judas and Matthias the Divine Mystery of Personal Destiny. For books this week, I review Howard Zinn, The Bomb, San Francisco's City Light Books, 2010, 91 pages. Howard Zinn, 1922 to 2010, grew up in the slums of Brooklyn, the son of two immigrant factory workers. After serving in the Air Force, Zinn completed his doctorate in history at Columbia University. From 1964 until 1988, he was a professor of political science at Boston University. Zinn is best known for his million seller, A People's History of the United States which typified his radical analysis of the structures of power that form the basis of his teaching, his writing, and activism in movements for peace and justice. This little book, The Bomb, was the last of Zinn's 30-plus books that he published before his death in 2010. 
Three weeks before Germany surrendered and the war ended in Europe on May 8, 1945, a young Howard Zinn participated as a B-17 bombardier in the bombing of Royan, France, on the Atlantic coast near Bordeaux. It was Zinn's very last bombing mission, and the first ever use of jellied gasoline, napalm. The mission, the mission was militarily superfluous. It destroyed the little village of Royan, and it killed over a thousand civilians in its mission to attack so-called stubborn German garrisons. And then three months later, even though Japan was on the verge of surrender, America bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians. These mass murders constitute the historical backdrop for Zinn's final protest in a cry of the heart that lasted 60 years. When non-state renegades commit mass murders, says Zinn, we call them terrorists. When single individuals commit mass murder, we call them psychopaths. When self-righteous governments do the same thing as a matter of official policy, though, we justify the slaughter in any number of ways. We dehumanize the enemy. We appeal to patriotism and glorify war. We insist that our cause alone is the righteous one of liberation. We subjugate the conscience of the citizenry to the motives of the state. We argue that political ends justify immoral means. But any justification of mass murder like those of Royon, Hiroshima, and Nakasaki says in constitute what he calls a devastating commentary on our moral culture. Worst of all, we let silent obedience run its course. This habit of obedience, writes Zen, is the most powerful motive of all. The universal teaching of all cultures not to get out of line, not even to think about that which one has not been assigned to think about. The negative motive of not having either a reason or a will to intercede. We always point to someone else as being responsible. And so Zen concludes in the last sentence of this powerful little book, we must act on what we feel and think, here, now, for human flesh and sense, against the abstractions of duty and obedience. The title of the book, The Bomb, by Howard Zinn. For film this week, we go to Brazil in a film called Wasteland from the year 2010. Wasteland received an Oscar nomination for Best Documentary Film for its betrayal of the New York-based visual artist Vic Munez, who traveled to his home country of Brazil to make art with the 3,000 catadores, or garbage pickers, at the world's largest landfill, Hardim Gramacho, near Rio de Janeiro. Munez, who is famous for making art out of unusual materials like sugar, dirt, diamonds, string, wire, and chocolate syrup, and then photographing it, went to the garbage dump to see if his art could be a vehicle for social justice. 
We meet many catadores who speak of the dignity of hard work, pride in an honest day's wages, the sense of community among the workers, and the environmental consequences of consumption. Many of these people have spent most of their lives there. In particular, Munoz chooses a half a dozen pickers to collaborate with him in a large warehouse studio, where together they turn garbage into art about their lives as pickers, which art is later auctioned in London and exhibited at MoMA in New York. The film illustrates the transformational power of art in the connection of every human being with beauty. In English and Portuguese with English subtitles. The title of the film, Wasteland, from Brazil, 2010. And finally for this week, in keeping with the theme of divine mystery and personal destiny, we've posted a poem by William Cowper. It's often known as a hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. William Cowper lived from 1731 to 1800. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a found frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. William Cowper, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 5th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.